Hello everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Social Work Journal. I'm your host, Del Tom, and today we are going to discuss narratives. What is a narrative? It is a spoken or written account of events. I believe that people tell themselves the story that makes them feel better. Let's keep that in mind as we continue to go along in today's podcast. So there's this article, How Storytelling is Good for Your Mental Health, and it was written by Very Well Mind, and they give some very key points about why storytelling is important and why it's good for us. So one of the points that they make is that storytelling improves social skills through active listening. Now think about it. how many of you all have engaged in storytelling with a friend. You're listening, you're making affirmative statements, or maybe your gaze is very intent. You're looking them in the eye. That's all part of active listening. That improves your social skills because it helps you make a connection with that person. When we share these stories, these deep stories about ourselves, we don't feel alone. We're able to see that we're not the only person who has experienced certain things. And so we feel that connection. So let me give you an example of this. Let me go ahead and tell you this next point first, is that storytelling supports us revising our narratives, especially if we're engaging in negative self-talk where we're telling ourselves that something is a lot worse than what it actually is. So let me give you the example now. Let's say you were to tell a friend, oh my goodness, I really messed up this time. I had a great failure and your friend were to say, well, what happened? And you say, I invested $25,000 and I lost all the money. And so through that investment and through you losing all that money, you're feeling like a failure. That's the narrative you've told yourself. That's the narrative that you have shared with your friend. Now, as your friend is listening, you know, they're affirming you and saying, oh, wow, that is such a great loss. I, I completely understand why you may feel that way. After you're done expressing your feelings and sharing, they might start asking you some critical questions. They might start asking you, well, do you have any money left in savings? And you say, yeah, I have some money left in savings. And then they say, okay, well, um, are you still able to pay your rent or pay your mortgage? And you say, yeah, I can pay my rent and my mortgage. I got $5,000 in savings and I'm able to pay my rent and my mortgage. I'm still working. And as you're saying these things out loud, you are reassessing that narrative that you originally had, which is that you engaged in this epic failure. And you're starting to see, hmm, maybe I'm not so bad off. And your friend is also helping you reevaluate that. And then maybe your friend says something affirmative like, well, if you got savings and you're able to pay your rent, you're not so bad off. So I think you're okay, you know, but I am sorry for your loss. So this is why storytelling is good for our mental health. Now, I'm not an expert, but I am experienced. And I do want to share with you all that I believe there are two narratives that consistently circulate within our minds, our hearts, our spirits, our souls, our beings. That's the narrative that we tell ourselves and the narrative that we tell others. Now, the narratives that we tell ourselves, I believe it helps us justify our behavior whether our behavior is intuitive or counterintuitive. The narrative that we tell others is tied to our identity because we as people, our identity is who we are, right? We believe in who we are and we need others to believe that we are who we say we are, which is why it is so 
hurtful and painful when someone challenges our identity because they're challenging our belief in ourselves. And if we don't know who we are, then who are we? Now, narratives can involve that negative self-talk that we discussed earlier. I don't believe that we always engage in negative self-talk just to put ourselves down because remember, our narratives are things that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. So I do believe that sometimes we engage in this negative self-talk with the intention of motivating ourselves. Like for instance, if you were to say to yourself, I need to work out because I'm getting fat. Maybe you're saying to yourself that you're fat because you're thinking it's going to make you want to work out more. Now, it would be intuitive if it does make you work out more and eat healthier and you start to lose the weight. But it's counterintuitive if you notice that suddenly, not only am I not losing weight and I'm not working out and I'm not eating healthy, I'm eating junk and I'm eating even more and I'm gaining weight. Maybe it's because that negative self-talk is actually making you feel a sense of hopelessness. And if you feel hopeless, then what's the point of making any changes? Oh, I'm just fat. I'm just going to be this way. Nothing's going to change. So that's how negative self-talk can be counterintuitive. Now, we've got to get into psychoanalytic theory, ego psychology, to truly understand these narratives. So I'm pretty sure you guys have heard of the name Sigmund Freud. And he is the one who pioneered this whole psychoanalytic theory. The id, the ego, and the superego. Now with the id, the ego, and the superego comes internal conflict. Because the id is our primal instinct our basic desires, you know, that pleasure. And I'm sure you've heard of the pleasure principle. We want to experience pleasure and want to disregard pain, right? And then there is the superego and that's our morality. And that's where when we engage in things that our ego governs, our consciousness, our ego is the one that helps us assess our values and our attitudes and our beliefs and structure those things, right? Our super ego is where we get that internal conflict, that anxiety. That's where we start to feel like that guilt when we're not living up to what we believe is within the moral code. And that's where all this internal conflict comes into play. Now, when we talk about narratives, what we're actually talking about here is we are talking about ego strength because I believe in order to make sure that your narratives are balanced, to make sure that you're questioning the evidence. And in psychoanalytic theory, they actually refer to this as reality testing. And this is what helps us be more realistic about some of our ideas and our views and our perception. You have to be able to resolve those inner conflicts. You have to be able to come to terms with some of those emotional problems. Delay gratification. Does all of this sound familiar? Hmm. We talk about cognition quite a bit here on this podcast. So this is a part of our cognitive process, our ability to tolerate frustrations, resolve inner conflict, our ability to resolve some of those emotional problems. And this is also a part of having a strong ego. Now, someone with a weak ego may not be able to manage these inner conflicts. And that's where you kind of hear this terminology about narcissism. I think it's very important that we 
really truly understand that the term narcissism is overused way 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 overused to actually be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder do you know i believe that only 6.5 percent of our population could actually qualify for the criteria of narcissistic personality disorder so it's a really rare disorder and it's seen between somewhere between 50 and 75 percent in males so it's more prevalent in males than it is in females okay so i want us to really keep that in mind yes we're about to start discussing weak ego but let's not over pathologize people and go straight to well that sounds like narcissistic personality disorder or that sounds like a narcissist because what about the other things it could be it could be manipulation delusion fragile ego it could be insecurity self-consciousness self-absorption there's a lot of things it could be we don't have to go to the last stop on the train and automatically assume someone to be a narcissist I kind of want to give you an example of when our narratives are challenged and when they become counterintuitive, how sometimes our behavior doesn't always align with our intentions. So I'll give you this example. I remember some time ago, I was working closely with this teacher and I don't know why at that school, the culture of that school was like the teacher was sort of the the center of everything. And so there was a lot of pressure on teachers to be knowledgeable in all areas. But because of that, I think that teachers were positioned to sometimes feel threatened by outside experts. Well, we all have our areas of profession. That's why it's called a multidisciplinary team. So if the teacher is trying to be the expert in all these different areas, they're going to fail. So anytime they have that perceived failure or they experience that failure, it's a great loss. And it may cause you to act out in ways that are counterintuitive to your intentions, right? So that it, that desire to be knowledgeable and to maintain being seen as knowledgeable because that environment is projecting that expectation on that teacher. And that teacher is just trying to uphold that expectation. So... Let me get into exactly what happened in this situation. I was trying to get some information over to a parent that was dealing with grief and loss and needed some resources. And I had this information because I'm the social worker. Well, the teacher was evading my request to get the parent's phone number so that I could relay the information to the parent. Well, long story short, I ended up getting it elsewhere but I realized the reason why the teacher was evading my efforts was because they were concerned that I was going to be giving this highly useful information to this parent and it was somehow going to make that teacher look incompetent. Was that teacher ill-intentioned? I don't believe so. Because I truly believe that as people, we are inherently good and that we intend to do good. And I think that teacher intended to do well by that student. But that teacher was so consumed with their own personal desire to maintain this identity, this narrative that had been projected on them, that they were engaging in behavior that was counterintuitive to their intentions and also was harmful to the student. So this is an example of how when our identity, that narrative that we share with others, and also when that's challenged, how we can act counterintuitively. 
Now, what I would like to also get into is defense mechanisms. Now, Anne Freud, Sigmund Freud's daughter, she is the one who came up with this concept of defense mechanisms. So when our ego is unable to evaluate why we're behaving the way that we're behaving and we start to behave counterintuitively and that superego begins to take over and we're feeling the guilt, we're feeling the anxiety. So we have that internal conflict. That's when we may result to defense mechanisms and that's completely unconscious a lot of times. Now there are negative defense mechanisms and most of them are considered to be maladaptive and then there are some positive ones. I don't want to go through all the defense mechanisms because that could be a whole nother podcast. Let's give an example projection. Have you ever had somebody project something on you? So I remember once I knew someone and we were having a disagreement. And then the person said to me, why are you so empty? And I remember thinking, hmm, I felt a lot of things in my life, but empty is not a feeling that I've ever experienced. And I was so puzzled by that. The person was projecting a feeling that they experienced within themselves upon me. And that's why they were asking me, why do you feel so, why are you so empty? And I was thinking, what, what does that feel like? I've never felt empty. So that's projection. Now there's other things such as repression. And sometimes our body represses memories for our own protection. Like if somebody gets in a really bad car accident and then they end up in the hospital and they're in critical care for a while. And then when they come to, because maybe they were unconscious and you ask them to recall the events, they may not be able to remember anything. They may not be able to remember so far back as their name or where they came from or who they are connected to. And that is the brain's way of protecting the body. So that was this unconscious effort of the brain taking over and saying, uh-uh, that was too traumatic. We're going to repress those memories until you're ready to deal with them. Now, that's a more extreme example, but we repress things that we don't want to feel or deal with. And that's part of that whole concept of that theory of the pleasure principle, right? Because we as people, we want to experience pleasure. We want to experience our desires. We don't want to experience pain for too long. Now, you guys know I love reality TV. That's my little guilty pleasure. And so... I was watching something on one of my favorite shows to watch. I like Housewives. I know that's terrible. You're probably thinking, she watches Housewives? What? But yeah, I watch Housewives. And I was watching this season of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. There was something that happened on that show that was just so, hmm. And, I mean, it really made me take a step back. And I said, this is a perfect example of narratives and how narratives play a role in our everyday life and how they cause not only internal conflict, but external conflict. So let me tell you what happened. There's this lady named Diana, and she's kind of new to this group of women. And they show a scene where she goes and she visits another lady's house and this other lady's name is Kyle. And she proceeds to tell Kyle about a traumatic event that happened. So she's engaging in storytelling. 
She tells her about a miscarriage that she had. Now, of course, we as people, we are likely to empathize with someone when they tell us such a traumatic event has occurred, especially if it occurred recently. We're like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry for your loss. That is your first instinct. It's one thing to tell someone that you experienced a miscarriage, but it was just the way that she started to describe it. She was describing it in such a dramatic fashion. And as she's describing this miscarriage, she says, oh, and the baby fell out of my body and I was bleeding everywhere. And you see this look on Kyle's face as she's actively listening. And she's shocked and she's covering her mouth and she's got this expression of having her mouth wide open. Her eyes are wide. And I believe she probably just didn't even know really how to react. She was just so surprised. I think that there is a sort of tactic in this as it refers to narratives or as it pertains to narratives. I do believe that this lady, Diana, and this is a speculation, and like I said before, you know, we don't want to over-pathologize people, but I do believe that Diana sees herself as a victim and as someone who is vulnerable. And I believe that she sees that as part of her identity and she has a need for others to believe that in her as well. So fast forward to another scene where Diana is engaging in a conversation amongst the group of ladies and the ladies are sort of going after, I guess you can say it was, it was sort of like a gang up on this other woman named Sutton. And so Sutton is trying to defend herself naturally because a lot of people are criticizing her. We don't want to be criticized. We want to experience pleasure. So these women are criticizing Sutton. She's trying to defend herself. And here comes Diana. And she starts to kind of add to the gang up. So naturally, because Sutton doesn't really know Diana that well, she is defensive with Diana. And she kind of shuts her down. She basically kind of, in a way, tells her to back off. Now, Diana, because she naturally goes through this narrative with people that she's vulnerable, that she's a victim, and she needs people to believe this, her first instinct, because she's not used to people challenging her behavior, was to cry. She started crying. Do I believe she genuinely had hurt feelings? Of course, I think her feelings were hurt, but I think more so than that, she was shocked that someone was challenging her behavior. Because if you think about it, if someone is a victim and they are vulnerable, are you going to challenge their behavior? No, you're going to back off. So if someone keeps wanting to play that narrative with you, it's a way of kind of disarming you. Because no matter what they say and no matter what they do, you're not going to be defensive. You're not going to be aggressive with them because you see them as a victim and no one truly wants to re-victimize a victim, right? That's part of our whole instinct. That's part of our whole, as we discussed earlier, we as people, I believe we are inherently good and we intend to do good, whether our behavior is intuitive or counterintuitive to our intentions. So moving forward, not only does Diana cry, but later she takes this light so fiercely because she's obviously not used to criticism. And she says something to the effect in the company of other women in the group of, I can't believe she yelled at me this way and she doesn't know me that well. Maybe I should headbutt her, which is pretty extreme. Now me, I would be taking a step back and I would be like, hold on now, you're going to do what? <laughs> because of what? 
hmm, that doesn't, that doesn't really add up. But fast forward after the fact, here's another thing that makes me pause and say, hmm, I really think this Diana lady is trying to give this narrative of being someone who is vulnerable and giving the narrative that she is a victim. As much as she dislikes this Sutton lady now, because this lady has challenged her and she has, in her mind, criticized her, she goes on to tell a story to Sutton and one of her close friends, Garceau, about losing her brother in the war and how he died tragically. But again, she adds in this detail that's a little graphic, a little extreme, and takes the women back, but naturally, they respond with empathy. Now Sutton, she attempts to share a story about how she lost one of her parents, her father, to suicide, and it was tragic, and it was Sutton, and that was Sutton's way of trying to make a connection with Diana. And because Diana has already created this narrative in her mind that Sutton is an adversary, and Sutton is ill-intentioned, it doesn't matter what Sutton says, she's not going to take it well. So her response is to basically run away. She makes an excuse and she says, well, you know, I'm not feeling so well, I'm going to leave. And so she says privately, they do these private interview confessionals. She says, well, it's like I share a tragedy and then Sutton, she has to add on a tragedy. If you want to know what I believe, I believe that this Diana lady didn't like the fact that Sutton was sharing her experience. Sutton was engaging in what we described earlier as storytelling. And she was doing that to make a connection with Diana. I believe that Diana did not take this well because if Diana needs the attention and she needs to be the one that's vulnerable and she needs to be the victim, she can't have anybody else claiming that they've too experienced some kind of traumatic event or that they too have been a victim of something, right? Because it takes away the effectiveness of what she's trying to portray. Now, the question is, is why would someone need to be seen as vulnerable or as a victim? Why would that be their unconscious narrative? It's a conscious narrative, but why would that be their unconscious narrative? And let me explain what I mean by that. By unconscious narrative, I believe that Diana probably truly believes that she is who she says she is. However, she needs that portrayal so that people will back off of her. They won't challenge her. And she can't be challenged because clearly she has a fragile ego. She can't handle criticism the way that most of us can. Most of us can take criticism and stride. Okay, you believe this, but this is what I believe, and that's okay that you don't believe in what I believe. Or if someone brings up a good point, and maybe they point out a flaw of ours, we can say, hmm, I never thought of it that way, but we have insight, and we're able to step back and reassess what the person shared with us. And it doesn't hurt our ego. It doesn't really challenge our identity in a way that is harmful to us, but it helps us reassess some of our behaviors. And then by challenging our behaviors, by engaging in that reality testing, we start to say, how do I want to move forward to be a better person? And that's what people naturally do when they have a strong ego and when they're able to be flexible with some of those narratives, because we are inherently good people. 
And we do want our behavior, ideally, to align with our intentions. So if someone brings to us that, hey, your behavior actually doesn't align with what you're saying you intend, you say, okay, how can I reevaluate the situation so that I can move forward and be better and make sure that my intentions are more clear with my behaviors? So, you know, I really don't have that much more to say about narratives, but this is a lot of fruit for thought. And I really want us to kind of think about some of the narratives that we share with ourselves and some of the narratives that we share with others. And I want us to question, do your intentions and your purpose align with your behaviors? And if not, what are some areas that you can challenge so that moving forward, you can be better and be more consistent with who it is you desire to be. Thank you so much for listening. It was a pleasure speaking with you all, as always. Until next time, bye-bye.